Right, and if our children have not left yet, you may now leave and depart to your classes. <laughs> so our text this morning is in Ephesians, and it is uh, about the hope, a really audacious hope. Uh, it is about the hope of Christ, the one who descended and then ascended to God's presence, who's going to fill the universe. Uh, and it describes the way he's going to fill the universe uh, but I want us to turn our attention to these words in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 7 through 13. Uh, because the, we're going to look simply at really verses 7 through 10, and you'll note the climax in verse 10 as we read it. But it's, it's about God's plan is not that he's keeping the light and love of Christ to himself in the corridors of heaven, <laughs> nor is he keeping it to himself, uh, just putting it in the citadel of the church among us. Uh, but his plan is to fill the entire universe uh, with the reality of his son. And we're going to look at how he does that. Um, while he is the only hope of the universe, um, Christ alone is the only hope of the universe, but he does not save alone. He saves and moves through the likes of us. So um, here is, I'll read you the word of God, Ephesians 4, starting with verse 7. He says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." So these, these verses are telling us that God's plan is this audacious plan this, to fill the universe with the hope of Christ, how the world needs hope. And we've seen these themes a couple places. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 9, that, that great 14-verse uh, burst of praise, it said that God's foreordained plan, and you can put up chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, his purpose was to bring all things together in heaven on earth. That we've seen the theme of Ephesians is basically bringing heaven to earth. And it says in verse nine, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is, this is an amazing hope. This, this is what we prayed for in the Lord's prayer when he said, thy will be done on earth uh, as it is in heaven. And the way this happens is in that first verse of Ephesians 4, 7, it says that to each one of us, when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, if you yielded your life to Jesus Christ, there was a grace, a power to affect this given to you as Christ apportioned it. And it was given to you through, through a, a gift that means that you are made to be a little Christ, a actor of Christ in the midst of this broken world. Uh, I love how uh, C.S. Lewis says that the point of the gospel 
uh, is to do nothing less than to make us little Christ. That is where it is going, that we are to be so impacted by Christ that we not only represent him by trying to replicate who he is, but there is, a, there is something we carry. Um, I, I really like that phrase of, of how we carry something. I believe we often, we carry something with us, whether we are in Christ or outside of Christ, there is something we bring into an equation of human relationships. And, and here he says, Christ gives us a, a, a gift of grace. And you might understand a, a spiritual, supernatural power comes into our life when at conversion, when the spirit descends into our life, uh, when our sins are released, our, our impediments and pollutions are cleansed, and Christ comes into our life, and there is now no longer a solitary uh, existence that we have, but we bring Christ into every encounter. And, and one of the places we actually skipped over this verse is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. It says something that is really odd. Um, in Ephesians 2, 17, it says that Christ came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. Now, this is an odd thing to say because Paul is writing to a, a group of believers uh, on the, the west coast of, of Turkey. Uh, you can see the map. I put, I put a map uh, quest of a, of a Google map up, uh, and it says that uh, from Jerusalem um, to uh, Ephesus, um, well, it's, you know, if you're, if you're driving a car, which who would want to drive a car through all these areas, um, you know, 22 hours and 34 minutes, <laughs> uh, or, or a day and seven hours to get there. But here's the reality. Um, Jesus never went to Asia Minor. <laughs> um, G, to, that's today, it's Turkey. So how could Paul actually talk about Jesus ever going there? I mean, it's, it's 615 miles um, by airplane. It's 1,122 miles if you were to get in a car. And Jesus never left the nation of Israel, though, though people estimate that Jesus probably walked over 3,000 miles if you track his ministry through the Gospels. That's, that's an impressive feat in three years, 3,000 miles. But, but he, he only traveled no more than 126 miles away, away from Galilee. So, so how is it that Paul says in, in Ephesians 2, Christ came and preached peace to you. He's saying that when those who God had appointed and gifted to preach Christ came, that it wasn't just a human being giving them information, but that it was actually supernaturally lifted up to another plane and that Jesus was in the room. Some of you, some of you have experienced that. If you're a Christian, you have experienced that through someone who brought Christ to you and you all of a sudden, it was not just that person, it was not just information, but that he was, he was speaking directly to you. It was, a, it, it was an encounter with God. And this is what he's saying, a spiritual gift is an ability to bring a person under the, the presence, the personality, the power, the influence of Christ, so that, that what is being experienced is beyond human explanation. You know, there was a, a hymn in, in England, uh, it was set to music, it was a poem by William Blake, and he, um, he wrote this hymn, you may have seen it in Chariots of Fire, if that great movie 
where, where he writes, he says, did, did those feet, did Christ's feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green and was the Lamb of God on England's pastures seen? Do you guys know any of that, that, that song that was popularized there? And I remember the, uh, the former atheist who now leads one of the best evangelistic programs, Nicky Gumbel, uh, leader of Alpha, said he used to be in an English school where they would sing that song, like, did those feet of Christ touch down in England? And he would just say, no, they didn't. It's all ridiculous. Christianity is a bunch of bunk and lies, right? <laughs> because he didn't literally, but he did actually spiritually and supernaturally um, impact England. And this is how he impacts all of the nations when he sends a people who have encountered Christ, who have received Christ, who have embodied Christ. And, and this is the narrative of, of the church. This is why I still believe in the church. It's still, it's an article of faith to believe in the church. It's a supernatural article. It's not just believing in a human institution. Because the church is appointed again to be the means by which God brings his presence, his person, his power into people's lives. And the way it happens is each individual who knows Christ carries Christ into those places. That, that's the first point of this in verse seven um, where he says he gave grace to every single person and it has been given to apportion it to others. Uh, this is why, let me say, it, while it's a blessing for those who can't physically join us in a, in a gathering, uh, in our gathering for worship to be able to watch online, it will never do to simply watch across uh, a YouTube video or a Facebook account. And in fact, um, it's not only not the right thing for the person who can't get to church to be limited that way, it's not right for us to say, We've done our jobs. We transmitted some information. <laughs> we've got to say, no, we've got someone who's sitting there who can't access us. We need to engage them. We need to be taking them communion. We need to be taking them encouragement. We need to, uh, if they can receive people into their home, um, pray with them and embody that presence. That's, that's how Christ fills all of the cracks and crevices of this broken universe. It's through people who have been acted on by Christ, who have received Christ, who embody and carry with them through the work of Christ. And so he says to each one of us, grace has been apportioned so that we transmit that grace to others. It's why, again, we can't, we can't possibly approximate what it means to be followers of Christ apart from being part of an, an expression of his body. Because this is how he is transmitting who he is into every, every darkened place in the world. This is how he, he moves. But verse eight, the second verse of, of, of our text, says this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And what I want to point out to this verse is that it is impossible for us to embody who Jesus is unless we have surrendered to the rescue he brings. Um, this verse in verse 8 describes our salvation as a rescue operation that is, he's quoting from Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 presents God as a divine warrior. And he's coming 
to release his prisoners of war. He's coming to release captives who have been taken captive through darkness, through evil, through hopelessness, through sin. And he's here describing that um, there is no hope for you and I apart from being, first of all, being an object of rescue. Um, that be, until we are rescued, we can't really manifest the gift of Christ. It, it's the difference between a spiritual gift and a spiritual talent is a, a talent can exist in someone who doesn't know the rescue of Christ. But it becomes a gift when that ability has been touched through gospel rescue. So I'll give you an, an example of this. You, you, could, you could sort this out, but somebody may be an incredible chef and a caterer. Uh, and sometimes in church world, we can even see that somebody has a, a, a gift and, that is really a talent. It functioned in them before they knew Christ. It functions in them before they understood anything of their need for a rescue. And, and so they're a caterer. But it does not mean that they have the spiritual gift of hospitality, because what is the gift of hospitality? The gift of hospitality, just hospi hospitable, means a love of the stranger. It means an ability to refresh people by inviting them into your space. It doesn't even necessarily mean a meal. It can mean that. It can mean a lodging. But the gift of hospitality is the ability to refresh someone. Well, I have known caterers who are the opposite of refreshing of people. <laughs> They are very good with, you know, budgeting food and preparing food and delivering food, but they are not so good. If you've ever sat in a restaurant that you've been enjoying conversation, and you kind of get the bums rush, right? Hey, is it time? Get, let's move along. Let's get out of here. It, it, it can only become a spiritual gift when there's, when there's that rescue. We've known people, right, who, uh, I, I was a music school student at Indiana University, and, and churches would sometimes hire music students and they could sing or they could play instruments in phenomenal ways but they were very fixated on their own techniques uh, I, I even was in the organ department where, where, where pipe organists would, would craft uh, their abilities but there was no spirituality connected with it um, until there's a rescue, until we realize that we have been the, the prisoners of war that are released, um, our gifts are simply talents. And you can have talents and they can be sometimes used or influential to transmit information, but they, they will not transmit the power God intended until there is this kind of, this kind of rescue. And what, I, what I'm saying is that the point of all of the gifts and ability is ultimately to manifest the person and the character of Jesus. We've lost the plot line unless we recognize that that is, is the absolute need. And while sometimes God may get something accomplished through a talent, it's not, it's not with the force of the gift. I once heard a, a pastor say he was preaching in Mongolia and he needed a translator who could speak um, his English and turn it in, into the Mongolian dialect that he needed to turn it into. And the person that he uh, was finally able to get who knew both was the most notorious drunk in that whole region. Most notorious, turned their back on their family, completely in the throes of addicted, but had a moment of some basic sobriety. And so he's preaching, and, and the, but it's being translated by a person who represents everything that is the opposite of the character of Christ. 
And you know what happened? A few people got saved. <laughs> but they had, they had a, a PR problem because they had to say, okay, um, the message came through, you know, the, the, the water came through those leaden pipes. <laughs> and it may prevent you from suffering dehydration and death, but there's some poison in those pipes, right? <laughs> that needs to be corrected by the override of the character of Christ. And our protection as Christians from this is the rescue of Christ. Our protection is not in some self-sufficient or ability, but it is, it is ultimately the protection of the gospel of Christ. And um, I like um, an expose of, of every generational shift in church that, that uh, when a church comes to a point of closing its doors, I heard somebody say there is a black box. You know the black box that they uncover when their plane crashes? And they get the black box out and they say, why did the plane crash? And then he said that when they look at churches that crash, that go into extinction, he says every church that has gone into extinction has a black box. And he says, here, here are the three phases of, of church extinction. He says the first one is there is a generation at first when a church starts that loves the gospel. People hear that there is complete and free forgiveness in Christ that you can do nothing to earn or deserve it. In fact, you deserve the opposite and that God did the unthinkable, that he sent his son who uh, intervened for us, paying the price that we deserved. Jesus was treated as though he lived the life that we deserve to be and in Christ, God now looks upon you if you are in him and you are regarded as God regards Jesus. He rescued us. And there is this sense of gratitude and expectation and joy and burdens lifted and this atmosphere that there is hope for everyone and there is this, this percolating excitement. That is love of the gospel. That's the first generation. Amen. He says in the black box though of destruction, another generation or phase of, of congregational life comes and he says that is no longer loving the gospel, it's assuming the gospel. And the gospel's kind of assumed, but the real essence is we've got, we've got to grind out the gears of expectations. We've got to grind out what character expectations we are. All of a sudden, instead of the exhortation of discovering the rescue and the forgiveness of Christ, it's like, hey, you, you need to live up to, to what our family reputation is. Or we need to maintain this, the wheels and oil of this ministry, and because they're not no longer maybe are people responding in the first generation way of the gospel. Even the pastor loses confidence in the gospel and doesn't believe that preaching the grace of the gospel will oil the machinery of the church. And look, if the gospel does not oil the machinery of the church's programming, then we need to look at the machinery and maybe turn it in. But this is what happens and all of a sudden there's the assumption of the gospel and there's a great weakening of joy, great weakening of expectation. And then he says the third generation is out of that generation that no longer loves the gospel, that kind of assumes the gospel. You don't hear the gospel talked about a lot. Becomes a becomes a generation that resents the gospel. And so they move from love of the gospel to assuming the gospel to resenting the gospel. And it crashes. That's the, that's the autopsy of virtually every denomination that once held the shell of, of life and resurrection, and it can happen in three generations. 
And, and what happens in the, the group that assume the gospel and move to resent the gospel is some tragedy comes into their life or some difficulty or loss. And it's revealed they, they resent the gospel because they say, I was going to church and God didn't come through for me. I was doing the right things. I was working hard. I was playing by the rules. And God, you didn't give me the life I deserve. And so it causes a crisis and then a falling away. And the solution to all of that is in verse 8 where he says, he delivered, he sets captives free. He delivered the captives. He set them free. And, in, and the solution to that is uh, in verse 9, it says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? I believe that simply is describing Jesus coming to the earth. And it says the lower earthly regions. He's just emphasizing the unthinkable reality that Christ who at the beginning is God, fully God. He never stopped being God. He never started being God. He is, with, he is God of God, light of light, eternally begotten, fully God. He did the unthinkable before the angels. This is, this is why Ephesians 3.2 says that the, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the authorities and the principalities because they look at the love of God and say, he actually gets involved himself that Jesus actually descended all the way to that manger in Bethlehem. And why did he do it? He descended the low earthly regions, verse 10. He who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than all the heavens in order to fill this broken universe. And if we've lost that plot line of the, of the rescue, that we've already started that deterioration of the narrative that winds up in the black box. And here's, here's the reality. That three-generation step into destruction of loving the gospel, assuming the gospel, hating the gospel, you know what? That can be my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Maybe, maybe most preachers would say, maybe it's your Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. <laughs> Sunday, we love the gospel. Monday, we're a little depressed. <laughs> There's, there's a latent kind of depression most preachers, you know, recognize, hey, don't, have, don't schedule the hard conversations on Monday. <laughs> and by Tuesday, we've forgotten and kind of resent the gospel. Come on, God, I preached it, and, and, and church world is not working like this. It, it doesn't even have to be your Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. <laughs> it can be your 9 a.m., 10 a.m., and 10.15. <laughs> Our lives can turn on a dime this way, right? <laughs> And so it's saying, don't forget the plot line of, of what God has called you to so that you carry the joy of salvation. You know those verses that appear a few times in the Bible, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Or with joy, of Isaiah 12, with joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. The part of the lie that we can start to believe is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is how we were introduced to begin our faith journey in Jesus. But now we've graduated from that and we just, you know, we do the Nike thing. We just do it. We just get it out. It's duty. It's obligation. And I'm not saying there are not times where obligation and duty don't keep me on the path, but I'm saying that that is a sign to bring that to God and say, God, breathe life into my dutiful service to you. God, let this not simply be grunted out of obligation, but fill it with a sense of joy and gratitude for what you have done in Jesus Christ. 
And so that's, that's the, the, the hope of verse eight in midst of the gift of verse seven and the distance Jesus went descending all the way down. But I want you to see the, the rest of the parts of the verse. And we're gonna pick up next week on what the gifts of apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, and all, all of that is. But what I want you to see uh, is in verse 12 and 13. In verse 12, he says that he came to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. In verse 13, it says, until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. And you know what a mature person is? The ultimate sense of maturity, and this word means telos or perfection, is a person who looks and sounds and walks and emotes like Jesus Christ. Christ-likeness is the goal. Ultimately, uh, the greatest power in the universe is not great abilities, but it is the character of Jesus Christ reverberating through us, intercepting us, sometimes simply preventing us from saying what was going to come to us naturally by nature, so that all of a sudden we find the personality of Jesus Christ starting to come into our personality. I, I love this section in C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, uh, people talk about like, well, it sounds like you Christians are for extinguishing your personality and just becoming, you know, like robots to Jesus Christ. And C.S. Lewis said this, he says, you know what? I didn't even have a personality until I came to know Jesus Christ. I didn't even begin to be able to express the u- unique as a fingerprint personality that God had given to C.S. Lewis, that God has given to every one of you. Do you know what? You, do, you and I do not even have the ability to express our unique identity in Jesus, in who God created us to be, the idea that God had for us when he created us until we come to Jesus. And, and, and one of the, the pieces that is really, it's like good news. It's, it's not a completed work. You know, the good news of the gospel that says your sins are forgiven, your pollution's atoned for, you no longer face judgment. That is a declaration that I love to make. And, and, and I often say the, the good news of the gospel is not good news unless you could deliver it to a person who's gonna die in 10 minutes and they would receive it as good news. The good news, here's a test for whether what you have is good news. Um, would it be good news to a person who's about ready to get a lethal injection? Because if it wouldn't be good news for them, it's not good news. Good news is something that is completed, that cannot be added to, that is not a project, that doesn't demand an any kind of work of RSVP other than like the beggar's hand receives the free gift of God. That's good news. If it becomes advice or something that you should do, then it's an expectation, right? But here, here is something that's, that's so close to good news, it's almost good news, and that is that if you are in Jesus Christ, God intends to make us mature. God intends to make us like Jesus. And, the, and, and here we come to the way God fills the universe is is he rescues us to humble us and astonish us, and then he imparts to us the character of Christ. Some of the better books that express this, ironically, are not even written by Christians who express the importance of character. Character is far more important than your knowledge. Character is far more important than your ability in transmitting Christ to the people you love. It is absolutely essential that you understand that. Um, The best success books understand this. 
that before they can talk to us about things that will help us achieve success uh, and become better at you know, managing relationships with others, those business books that say, you've gotta get good at managing people, whatever, they realize the first thing that that person has to be, the first thing I have to be is a person who knows how to manage myself. And that's the hardest person in my life to manage, is me. That's the biggest problem and conundrum I have, is how to manage me. If you really press me, and I probably can't even be honest if I wanted to, but I, I wouldn't be honest because I've only been here a few months and I don't want to lose this job this fast. But I mean, if you really pressed me and said, Bob, what is keeping you from being like Christ? What is the thing? What are the things that are keeping you from, from being everything that God wants you to be? The blame I would have to place would all be on me. And the relief of that is in Jesus. And the good news is that um, there is a promise of character that God is bringing about in Jesus Christ, and it, it belongs to us as part of the progression of the gospel. And the most important thing we do is not our ability or our knowledge, but it is having, it is carrying the essence of Jesus' personality in our personality where we go. Again, when I talk to people who are serious Christians who have left church and they say things to me like, I had to leave church in order to maintain my faith in Jesus. And if you've seen the brokenness of church up close, you don't disparage that person. You don't write them off. You say, oh, I'm so sorry. But your narrative was that you had to leave the thing that Christ founded so that you could keep hold of Jesus. That is a tragedy. I weep with you. I don't judge you. I make space for you. I say, welcome to, to the back row and continue to cling to Jesus, right? But, but the reason for that, if you really scratch beneath the surface, and this is a, a theme of mine is to always want to scratch uh, in a welcoming way beneath the words and the narratives, what you will always find is say, I experienced the institution of Christ without experiencing Christ-likeness. That's what you will always hear. In someone who is, who is still clinging to Christ, they've not changed their belief system, they've not changed their morality of how they're living, they weren't just seeking an easier path to spirituality, but they say, I had to leave church to hold on to Jesus. They'll say, I, I was jarred and, and wounded by experiencing what did not represent Christ by the very place that was meant to represent him. And I'm gonna say, this is, this is what will always happen when we lose the plot line, that the, the most important thing for a church is that we produce Christ-likeness and that our process and our spirituality aim at Christ-likeness. This is what it means. All those gifts, all those abilities, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, it's an utter failure and mess if it doesn't produce Christ-likeness. The whole goal is that God is filling the universe with Jesus, right? And for us to be that. And, and so we have to hold to that plot line. I heard a story that just really laid this on me about a teacher that probably a lot of you have heard of. Have you heard of the teacher R.C. Sproul? Um, a few years ago went to be with the Lord uh, maybe it'll jog your memory if you put that little picture up of R.C. Sproul. Um, and a couple students um, went 
after hearing him on the radio to go and hear him live. And when they heard him live, um, after the service, they were delighted that they were able to meet him and um, they were big fans. <laughs> so the whole celebrity pastor thing kicked in, which is very dangerous, but um, kicked in with RC and, and um, they had bought this little camera at Walmart, those little flash camera things. And um, they asked uh, RC after a couple of minutes, they said, would you mind if we took your picture? And they describe it this way. They said, um, he winced and he got a very distant look in his eye, thinking it over like we had asked if we could borrow his prized golf clubs <laughs> or if he would hand over his visa. Uh, and um, finally then he shook his head kind of reluctantly when, with their request to take a flash picture and said, well, I guess you can do it, go ahead. And they took the photo and then they left. And he said that little interaction tarnished their interaction with R.C. Sproul and their view of R.C. Sproul. They said, you know, he's, he's kind of a jerk about that request to take his picture. I, I, I'm trying not to respect him less, but I just can't unsee what I see. And so the next morning, they went to the Ligonier Conference to hear Sproul speak. And before the conference began, uh, a gentleman stepped out on the platform and said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to ask you to refrain from using flash photographs at this conference with Dr. Sproul because Dr. Sproul has a medical condition in which flashes from cameras can easily produce seizures in Dr. Sproul. Thank you for your understanding. The two obviously looked at each other and said, wow. This guy was not being reluctant. He was not being a jerk and getting his picture taken. He was literally weighing the cost to his own health versus disappointing two young men who admired him and he chose to risk his own well-being rather than deny us the memory. And it changed the whole equation. Friends, I, I don't know what Dr. Sproul's message was like that day, but there was a message that he preached through the reality of granting that photo op with the risk of his health that is more weighty. And this story I know has ricocheted around the internet as an expose of real Christ-likeness. Real Christ-likeness is proven over that longer, longer narrative of a love for Christ and a profound commitment to him. I have another story about someone who's a, probably one of the most popular Bible teachers. I, don't, I won't even share their name, but somebody asked their assistant who'd been with them for 30 years what it was like to be with them. And they said, you know, to be around this person is to be around a, a force of active attention to other people's needs, no matter what the situation. Said so we could be going into a conference where this person would be speaking before thousands of people and all they seem to be concerned about is us. This teacher remembered everybody on their staff. They had nine people who were on their staff. Everybody's birthdays and anniversaries and anniversaries of bereavements. And I said, and one thing we all noted and learned is that if we were ever starting a conversation with this person about someone else, about to make that other person the punchline of our conversation, they wouldn't allow it. 
kindness and, and, a, and a covering and consideration for, for everybody covered them. And, and, and what I want to say is when I hear stories like this, and, and here is a test whether you understand the gospel or not. When you hear stories like this, and let me tell you, I have two living siblings. I can't even get them birthday cards for their birthdays. <laughs> I am so incompetent at that kind of thoughtfulness, right? I, so I, I hear this kind of thing, like, wow, nine staff members, they remembered even the anniversaries of their bereavements and whatever, and I'm just like, oh, there's a part of me that when I'm not connected to the gospel, I just wanna say, that is a standard too high. I will, this will just make me feel like more of a screw-up than I already feel like. Uh, this will really feed the imposter syndrome of saying, hey, you know, the suggestion of Satan, hey, Bob, you're impersonated a Christian pretty well, but you're not really one. I don't know whether he ever says that to you. But when I remember the gospel, when I remember the gospel, I say, Lord, I want that. You can describe the highest, most beautiful, sacrificial life. When I'm remembering the gospel, I remember, Lord, I want that because I understand that Jesus has already paid for all the ways that I'm not that. That I'm not auditioning for a place in his family, but he's already taken me in. That I'm not living like, like an orphan without one watching over me who hands are stretched toward me who's pouring blessing upon my life he's already proven that that is who he is I'm convinced if there's an article of faith that we need to live the closest to it's not the article of faith that puts another demand or expectation upon us it's not that somehow you know again the beatings need to increase until morale improves that's what we think there are a, a lot of churches and organizations that that's their motto, basically. Hey, we need more, more beatings so that we'll get more work out of us. We need to be put on edge. Do you know the gospel's the opposite of that? It's that that will produce an obedience to avoid the beatings. <laughs> that's why it won't work. But what will work is understanding that there are the great narrative of our life is that there was a God infinitely above us and he descended to the lowest earthly regions. Maybe that's even a reference to the cross, descending all the way to the cross because he wanted us back in his family. And it wasn't just to pardon and forgive us of sin. That's the starting point. The starting point is to pardon us, to cleanse us of pollution, um, to put a new song in our hearts of life yes that's the first starting point but don't sell yourself short in addition to forgiveness God has this in your narrative he wants to make you more like Jesus he wants to bring you to the full stature of your life as an employee as a retiree as a spouse as a parent as a child as a neighbor as a person who just in the solitary confines of you, the theater of your own heart before God, he wants to make you experience more and more what the person of Christ would be in your personality. And this is our hope. <laughs> this is the only hope that is the effective, more than effective counterpunch to the reasons of our discouragement. <laughs> And the reality of our persistent brokenness is the power of Christ who gives a gift to all of us, who sets forth that chain reaction. And I ask you this morning, do you have this hope? Is that hope riveting through you that God isn't done with you? 
that really the best is yet to come if you don't measure it in terms of stuff or even relationships, but if you measure it in terms of being able to live a life that you could never live on your own, but that God is going to live for you. No matter what stage of life we're in, we don't play that stupid prevent defense game, right? Where you've got a little bit of a lead and then you just hug the ball and you know, hold the ball and hope that the time goes out. That's not us. That's not Christianity. Our hope is that God, by one degree of glory, as we gaze on the beauty of Christ, is making us more and more and more like Jesus, which is the one thing that satisfies our soul. Do you know that hope? There is nothing like it. There, there is nothing more powerful, no precious, more prevailing, more recognized across all the different faiths and divisions of our world. For as divided as the world is, I really believe this down to my toes, that when the world sees and hears an embodiment of Jesus Christ, criticism and polarizations, they are muzzled because Jesus is still the singular, radiant object worth it all. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that through Jesus Christ we could be part of the people that instruct angels. That we could be part of the healing of the brokenness of the world that brings together all things in heaven and earth under one. Lord, would you move so that we receive and believe that? Would you reinvigorate our hope in that? Because you have made that a gift to each one of us who will receive it this morning. To any who are not in Christ, who have not received you as Savior, Lord, may they see that there is no better time to do that than right now. And if there are any who have given up on their life or in the midst of hopelessness or self-pity or the woundedness that naturally comes in this world, Lord, would you put a new skip in their step and a new life in their soul this morning as you show us the glorious purpose you have given us to live for. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. She's standing and sing with us. We have a Savior, we have a Savior, we
great news. Makes me excited about Main Street, Oxford on Friday, right? To get that news of the gospel out and say to as many people like, they sound good, but the message that they embody is even better. Come on in. Um, he has come down for us. We have a savior. May we take the God we've experienced here in word and in worship out to where we live uh, and transmit him faithfully and well. Lift up your hearts to this God and receive this benediction. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you, make you like Jesus through and through, body, soul, and spirit, may he do this. Faithful is the one who calls us, and he will bring this to pass through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. His love will reign forever. 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 His love will
light that burns in the darkness There is a hope that washes the fear away There is a peace that settles around us